success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Our world is always so rush, rush. We can never get any personal time to ourselves, let alone those that we love. Welcome to Might Radio with host Gabriella Von Ray. Our mission, to reintroduce kindness and compassion to our busy lives. Remember when life was so much simpler? Gabriella and her guests today will pick up the ball of human kindness and by doing so, empower you to make changes in your own life. And now, here is Gabriella Von Ray. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another show of Might Radio. Our guest today is quite special. Her name is Katie Beers. And her book is about buried memories. It's a true story of survival, memory, and recovery. She was profoundly neglected and abused as a child, even before she ever was kidnapped in Long Island in 1992. Abducted by a family friend, she was held captive in an underground cell for 17 days and sexually abused. With smarts and strengths, she slipped the bonds of captivity and began a new life. Katie, now married and a working mother, has revealed her inspiring story of torment and recovery. One of the things that's really special about Katie is that she actually has taken the courage to come out with this story, and I had the pleasure to talk to her a couple of days ago. Katie, are you there? I think we're still waiting for Katie to call in. Um, let me just refresh your memory a little bit about her story. Um, this happened two decades ago, and um, there is a picture of kidnapping, but the strange part is that she was actually kidnapped by a family friend, and that it happened all under the noses of the um, under the noses of the police, so they really couldn't find her. Katie, are you there with us? I am. I am. So sorry. Don't worry at all. I know you're doing interviews nonstop. Uh, I um, made sure that everyone is really excited to have you here uh, on this show. Katie, what I think is so special about you, apart from that your story, of course, is heart-wrenching, but that you actually come forward, that you've taken the courage to want to help other children and and to set everyone straight about what you went through. Could you give us a little background on who you are before the kidnapping ever happened? Before the kidnapping ever happened, I was not even a typical nine-year-old girl. Um, from the time that I could remember, as early as I can remember, I was physically, emotionally, verbally, and mentally abused by my godmother. I was physically, emotionally, mentally, verbally, and sexually abused and raped by my godmother's husband. And then I was also neglected by my mother, who um, let me live with 
these my godmother and my godmother's husband. Yeah. How, how did you end up living with your godmother? Um, there are so many differing stories. Um, <laughs> my my biological mother said that she dropped me off to stay with my godmother because she had a migraine and was unable to properly care for me. When she went to go pick me up, my godmother basically said, no, you're not taking my daughter. And that, I believe I was a couple months old. And that, I guess, is where it all started. Yet, when my biological mother got me back, she still allowed me to go and visit my godmother and my godmother's husband. Hey. So your family home was truly not pleasant. You're one of those children that has basically no safe foundation. Exactly. Okay. So would would you say because you didn't have that safety net that it was easier to, to be a predator for someone else again? Oh, my heavens, yes. I definitely think the fact that I had no adults in my life that really cared for me that it was very easy for another predator to come, even though the predator was a trusted family friend. Um, it was very easy for him to come and um, abduct me. Did you, as a child, did you at all, his name is Esposito, and I know in your book you also refer to him as Big John. Yeah. Would you say that your relationship was friendly with him before that time, that you trusted him? Before the abduction, I mm -hmm. trusted Big John. He he was a trusted family friend, somebody that my brother and I loved spending time with. Um, he never did anything wrong to me. I found out years later that he actually sexually abused my brother. Um, but other, I mean, to me, he was a trusted family friend. We all loved him. Okay, so he was actually kind to you. Yes, very much so. So tell me a little bit, how could he have adopt, uh, abducted you in front of literally the world watching? Um, he had built this underground dungeon, as I've come to call it, that was, it was hidden so well. He did it with intent. He built this thing with intent. It was hidden so well underneath his house, underneath a carport, um, it behind, like to get to it, you had to go, you had to pull out a shelving unit from the wall. It was so intricately designed. Um, he asked if he could take me the day that he abducted me. He asked my godmother if he could take me to Spaceplex, which was kind of like a Chuck E. Cheese. Okay. Um, and she said, yes, my biological mother, Marilyn, told me that I wasn't allowed to go anywhere with him. So I told Aunt Linda, my godmother, I said, I'm not allowed to go with John anywhere. And she said, oh, it's okay, you'll be home in a couple hours. I found out years later the reason why I was not allowed to go with Big John is because he had abused my brother and my mom had just found out about it. Um, ah. So he, he knew that I wasn't allowed to go see him. My biological mother would not allow it. So he waited until I was with Aunt Linda, and Aunt Linda said that I could go with him. Wow. What a story yeah. that that they didn't even let you know, really, or that they didn't protect you right there and then. Yeah. And, and, and you did not know at all about your brother's rape, right? 
No, not until I was much, much older. My goodness. So you went with him uh, of your own accord and yep. totally free, not thinking he would do anything to you. The only thing that I knew is that Marilyn, my biological mother, told me that I was not allowed to be with him. That was the only quote-unquote warning sign that I had. Um, but since Aunt Linda said it was okay, I went and didn't think anything of it. No, of course I understand that. And if you, when you say this was intense, he must have been on purpose friendly to you because he was preparing all this, so he needed your trust. Would you agree oh, to that? Most certainly. Now, he, I trusted Big John from the time that I was, since I could remember, he was always a figure in my life. Um, so it wasn't even that he had to really gain my trust because he already had it. Um, but it was, he was intending, I think, for a very long time to abduct me. Yeah. How long do you think it took him to create that bunker or the dungeon, like you call it? I remember, year, like, a year, year and a half. I don't remember exactly when. But I remember, actually, my brother, John, and my brother's friend playing in it when it was being constructed. Wow. Yeah, but you so told me, which was really interesting, you told me that because I don't understand how people can build things like that without the neighborhood noticing. But he was, this is for the listeners especially, John Esposito, Big John, was a contractor, correct? Yes, he was a contractor. So he constructed most of it himself, and the parts that he was unable to construct, he would hire companies from... I believe outside of the state, but at least outside of the area, so it couldn't they couldn't come back to him. Wow, amazing. And so once you were in the bunker, tell me what you want to share with the public about it, if anything. Once I was in the bunker, I was basically scared to death. Um, John had never done anything like this, to my knowledge. I mean, trusted him, loved him cared about him, and now he's holding me against my will. He had he had told me that he was going to hold me there until the cops stopped looking for me, and then maybe I could um, live upstairs with him. And so I knew from the very, from almost the very beginning, that he was going to hold me for a long time, or that was his intent at least. Um, mm -hmm. When you get into this bunker... The, there was, like, lighting in the main area of it, and then there was a little box that I was kept in for 23 hours out of the day. Um, it's now being referred to as the coffin-sized box because it was two feet wide by three feet high by seven feet long. And that's where I was kept 23 hours of the day, deprived of light, deprived of, obviously, human contact, um, deprived of everything. I mean, I didn't have any food other than what he brought me, the junk food that he brought me every day. Um, I, I was very, very fearful while I was in there. Yeah, I cannot even imagine. I mean, I don't think any of us, Katie, can imagine what it's like. Uh, to be you and to go through that. And how old were you exactly at that time? 
It was, I was abducted two days before my 10th birthday. Two days before so your 10th birthday. birthday. You spend your birthday there. Wow. Anything else that you feel that we need to know about the bunker experience that you want to share? I'm trying to think. I feel like I'm being put on the spot even though I'm not. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, I mean, it was was a dark, dank, damp hole in the ground that I was basically buried alive in. He was my only source of human contact. I watched the news every day because in the smaller coffin size box, there was a television in there, thankfully. So I was able to keep tabs on what was going on on the outside world. And that helped me not give up hope that people were looking for me because I would see the news reports every day of the police looking for me. So that at least gave me that ounce of hope that I wasn't being given up on. That was that must have been surreal. And did you feel that Esposito would would have killed you if you tried to escape? Um, there was no way for me to escape. I quickly found out. Um, the only thing that I thought of, it, the only reason why I thought I might die while I was in captivity, is because John would kill himself or he would be killed. That's the only reason why I ever even imagined that something, that I would die. Okay. And he never made threats towards the rest of your family to hurt them in any way if you would escape? John did not, no. John did not. Wow, amazing. And then did he from, and again, if you don't want to answer the question, feel free to not to, Um, (laughs) if Did he start the sexual abuse immediately, or was this a slow process? It was pretty much immediate. Um, Well, before he had even abducted me, when he was in the, I guess, the process of it, I was sitting up in his bedroom on his bed, which, again, was not unusual at all for me to be sitting on this 40-year-old man's unmade bed in his bedroom because that's where all the games were, that's where the TV was, that's, I mean, that's where everybody hung out. Um, so he had actually, before he had abducted me, um, he had pulled me up onto his lap while I was playing a video game, told me that he wasn't going to hurt me, and then he sexually abused me um, before he even had me in the bunker. Oh, my goodness. That's really a terrible story, Katie. I read, and uh, of course I haven't read your your book yet, but I've read some of the press releases. You found a way, though, to escape against all odds. What was the psychology that you actually used? What can a 10-year-old actually do to convince someone to let them go? It was actually such a combination of the law enforcement not letting up on John, not... um, I mean, they were basically sitting on his house 24-7. If he would leave his house, they were inspecting everything that was in his car. Um, They were not letting up on him at all. Um, So it was a combination of that. It also, um, I would ask John every day different questions. Like, it started off, I want to go to school. I'm not going to be able to go to school if you have me here. And he would tell me that he was going to teach me, that he would be my teacher. Then um, 
I would tell him that, well, I want to work when I'm older, and he would tell me that I wouldn't have to work because he would have enough money for us to live. Then I started telling him, I was like, well, I want to get married and have kids one day. And that this is where I probably got most frightened because he would tell me, well, when I'm ready to, that I'll marry him and I'll have kids with him. And I was mm. 10 years old at that time, and I have a mid-40-year-old man telling me that he's going to have children with me. Wow. That's, yeah, that's just what I was going to ask you. How old was he? He was, to the best of my recollection, <clears throat> he was in his mid-40s. My goodness. Okay. And he didn't have a prior record that uh, any of your family members knew of? Not that any of my family members knew of. He was arrested um, for trying to kidnap a boy in the 70s, um, I think in, like, the mid to late 70s. Would you say that's why the police was really on his case on top of it? Because they probably um, knew that information. I think that that's part of it. It also had to do with um, he was the last person to have been seen with me. <clears throat> and um, Dominic Verone, the lead detective, um, when John was first being interviewed about the last person to be seen with me, um, Dominic Verone said, well, what do you think happened to Katie? And John's response was something dirty. So, And that wouldn't be a response from somebody who hadn't done something. A response sure. from somebody that hadn't done something would be like, oh, my gosh, I don't know, but I'm scared for her, something along those lines. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to break for a second, Katie, and we'll be right back um, to continue this conversation. Sure. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv we all want peace. We all desire a more meaningful life. We work hard to achieve these things, but at what avail? The key is authentic living with Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of the great spiritual experts of today and will provide wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your own I am. Your authenticity can give you miraculous gifts, but you have to know how to get there. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the 7th Wave Network. Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even co-worker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. 
You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things. And together, you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite twice every week, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety and on the Voice America Empowerment Channel every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Might Radio. Do you have a question or comment for our show? Perhaps you wish to share your own stories of human kindness. Please send an email to Gabriella Von Ray at gmail.com. That's G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-A-V-A-N-R-I-J at gmail.com. Now, back to Might Radio with Gabriella Von Ray. Hi, everyone, and for the people that are just tuning in, this is the Katie Beers, her own personal story, and she wrote a book called Buried Memories. She was kidnapped in 1992, uh, short of just becoming 10 years old and sexually abused and held against her will in a bunker. Katie, thank you for being with us. Thank you. You know what I was um, thinking during the commercial (laughs) is that... You know, this is the Mind Radio, and I always talk to people that, unfortunately, I think every human being has the might in us. But you're a true example of when you go through extreme pain on all levels, in your case, um, that you have found that might deep inside of you to kind of survive it all. And I think your title, Buried Memories, um is kind of almost healing because by burying them away, you try to actually have a normal life. Is that, would you say that in the last 20 years after this entire ordeal that you felt slightly like a normal person, like an average kid where you say, I can run, I can play and I can forget for a moment or two. That is most certainly accurate, and that has a huge part to do with um, the life that I was given after I was abducted, Um, was able to go on and live a so-called normal childhood from 10 years old on. So how did that happen? How did you, the the police, I presume everyone, once you were out, from there on, Once I was out, I was put into a foster home, and my foster parents are incredible. They are absolutely incredible. They, them and my siblings are the reason why I was able to recover in the way that I did. If it wasn't for the love, support, and stability that they had shown me, I don't know if I would have made the type of recovery that I did. I also was put right into um, counseling, and my therapist, Mary, was phenomenal also. Wow. It, it seems like you, you almost talk about your foster parents as if they are your parents. Am I, am I correct in hearing that? Yes, most certainly. My foster parents, they are my parents. They are, the, they are my kids' grandparents. They are my husband's in-laws. Um, they're 
they're the ones who gave you the foundation, the true foundation that every child deserves. Exactly. Absolutely. Well, you're you're one of the lucky ones because not always, sometimes we go from abuse to abuse to abuse, right? Yes, yes, definitely. But, Unless you're taken out of it, it's just a never-ending cycle. Okay. But as a child, once, I don't know the the, the time frame, but... Did you go to school immediately? Did they try to give you that normal life? Or did you need to spend hours being interrogated by the police? And, you know, I can imagine that there's a part where you just can't immediately, you know, go straight back into a school system. Um, my I was basically put right into school, I think. When I went to live with my parents, I think the next, like, quote-unquote, school day was a holiday or something along those lines. They, my parents got me right into a normal life. So I was going to school right away, um, with the exception of I was having to go to um, therapy a lot. I was preparing for a trial against my godmother's husband. So I was out of school for those reasons. Um, I My parents had to drive me 45 minutes to a dentist probably three times a week for the first, I'm going to say, three months because I had such horrible um, dental hygiene that I just, it, it was horrible. Um, so my parents invested a lot in me the first um, year or two that I was with them. And they just, they got me into what a normal childhood should be. And it was phenomenal. Was the teeth problem and the hygiene due to the junk food that Big John was feeding you during your kidnapping days? Um, it was due to lack of um, parental and or adult supervision uh, um, for my hygiene. Nobody ever told me, <clears throat> I'm so sorry. Nobody ever told me really that you had to brush your teeth every day or even every week. So I can't even tell you before I lived with them. I don't even know if I knew to brush my teeth um, and things like that. So it was just mm -hmm. such poor adult supervision. Mm -hmm. Wow. Amazing. And did the media leave you alone? Because I, I mean, we all know what media is like today. Um, after a while, and again, my parents sheltered me so much from everything that I, until years later, I had no clue how many newspaper articles were out there about me. Um, I didn't know that there were reporters um, looking for me. I didn't know any of this, which that, again, aided in my recovery. Um, but eventually, they did leave me alone. But do you feel, um, this is a question that uh, I think a lot of listeners would be interested in, because we know you got a new name, you got a new identity, I presume you lived in a complete different town or city. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you, because you were old enough, you're 10 years old, you know that you have a biological mother somewhere, you, you yourself want to move on from this horror And you want to forget as fast as possible. So my question really is, first of all, how did you do that part? But, uh, you know, you want to go back to your biological mother because family is family. But at the same end, you're being offered a new identity, a new name. How, how did you how did you balance those two? 
because these foster parents were new to you. I mean, today I totally understand that you love them. But in that beginning phase, wasn't it just scary to be again with new people? It definitely was. From the beginning, I wanted to go back and live right back with my um, biological mother. Thankfully, I didn't. Um, thankfully, I stayed in foster care. Um, it took. It definitely took me a while to get used to the structure and stability. Um, the structure and stability of the life that they were offering me. It definitely was a an adjustment on everybody's part. Yeah, that's what I can totally imagine. That at the one hand, you're so glad to to be somewhere where you're taken care of and at the other hand you you must wonder where your mother is did she ever try to get you back um as far as i know for the first couple of years she did um but then after that i think that she just realized that she wasn't going to get me back so she kind of gave up which was fine <laughs> And so in this process where your godmother and um, her husband, did they ever get convicted, either of them, for neglect and all the things they did to you? Um, my godmother was never convicted of anything. Um, in the media, she came out looking like roses. She came out looking like the only adult in my life that had cared about me. Um, my godmother's husband, he was convicted of, um, sexual abuse and, um, he was never, he wasn't convicted of rape, but he was convicted of the sexual abuse and he was serving, he served, um, four to 12 years and he ended up serving the maximum, the 12. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing that she didn't get any punishment for child neglect even. Because now, it sounds like you were totally neglected for, you know, like you just said, the basic hygiene is total neglect. Uh, and you know that today because you have children yourself. Mm -hmm. Wow, it's amazing yeah, that she never got um, any time for that. Nope, none. None. Well, you, you say it kind of matter-of-factly because you're, you're <laughs> done with that part. Oh, yeah, I have not had any now. As far as I know, my godmother um, did die, but I, um, I have not had any contact with her since after the abduction. I can understand that. So I'm going to jump here a little bit to your book because 20 years later, here you are. And again, I can just imagine, like you just said, all these articles, all these stories and Nobody ever talked. The one that should have talked is you. So at a certain point, you're kind of probably frustrated about what you read out there, or did you never read any of the articles later as an adult? As an adult, I read them, but not until I was well into my teenage years did I read them. And it was definitely frustrating to see what was going on as a child, um, about my case, it was the most frustrating part for me. I think really looking back on it was that my godmother came out looking like a saint and that mm -hmm. just drove me crazy. And that's, I mean, that's a little bit as to why I wrote the book because I wanted people 
to see what really went on in my life, what um, I wanted to lay the rumors to rest about where I was kept and the adult in my life. I wanted to tell people my side of the story. And then as I got older, it became more about helping victims. And I wanted to help them and let them know that you kind of can recover from a trauma if you have the mindset to do so and if you have the correct support system, you can work on a recovery. And I also, a lot of it had to do with the fact that I wanted to shed light on how much went wrong in my childhood and how many people just stood by and watched it happen. So are you are you saying that uh, neighbors, educators knew how neglected you were and never stepped in? I de- um, now, I don't know who stepped in or when they stepped in, but there were a couple people that did call Child Protective Services. Um, but it was hard, I think, for the community to not realize that I was being neglected and that there was a lack of adult care in my house. I would be walking to the laundromat at four years old doing Linda and Sal's laundry. So the laundromat attendant who helped me put the coins into the machine. Um, obviously, a four-year-old doing laundry, that's a problem there. A four-year-old without adult supervision along a main highway, that's a problem. Um, then community members, I mean, I was walking down the road in the middle of winter without a coat on, possibly even without shoes on. Um, I attended school for the first until fourth grade, maybe one to two days a week. There was a good chunk of time when I wasn't even enrolled in school. Okay. Could you tell me why not? What, what, what was the reason of your godmother not to put you in school? Um, the reason for that is because Marilyn, my biological mother, was trying to get me to was trying to get me from Linda to go back and live with her. Linda wanted me to stay living with her, so there was a quote-unquote custody battle going on between the two of them, just not in the court system. And Linda, since she was not my legal guardian, she could Mm -hmm. not enroll me in the school, and Linda and Marilyn were living in two different towns. Yeah, okay. That sheds a lot of light for me and the listeners. That's quite interesting what you're saying there, because... If they had taken it one notch further, you would have been in the system and then a social worker would have actually checked out the place, right, where you would be living. Um, yes. And now with that being said, too, social, CPS, Children Protection Services, had come to my residence. Okay. The problem with that is they had interviewed me and Sal had threatened me, he threatened my family, he threatened everybody that I cared and loved, um, Mm -hmm. saying that if I ever told anybody, he was going to kill me and everybody. Um, So when Child Protective Services had come to my house to interview me about if there was abuse or neglect going on, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, Sal's going to kill me if I say anything. And then also, Children Protective Services was interviewing me in the house where the abuse was going on. And not only were they interviewing me in the specific house, they didn't know this, they were interviewing me in the bedroom where the abuse was happening, and I was sitting on the bed that the abuse was occurring on. You must have been paralyzed having someone ask you questions knowing that there were threats to kill everyone. 
Exactly. And then I'm sitting on the bed there asking me, have you, has anybody ever touched you inappropriately? And I'm sitting on the bed where Sal had inappropriately touched me. Yeah. And had me touch him. Yeah. I, I hope you've told this to police and educators and social workers this part many times because. Most certainly. I think they make this error still today. Yes, I, de- I definitely think, I mean, in my, in my opinion, if there's a thought of abuse going on, physical, sexual, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. when you're interviewing the child, you shouldn't be interviewing them in the residence where the suspected abuse is occurring because they're not going to tell you the truth. I mean, they're going to be, like you said, paralyzed and scared to death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm surprised. I, I don't know if in the next two decades between when this happened to you and now, if social workers have more education and more cases where they actually are able to talk to people like you and be educated through you to actually take better care of future children that are being abused. Do you know if if the system is better today? Do you know anything about that or not at all? Um, I do not know because thankfully I have... (laughs) <laughs> myself very much with that aspect. Um, I, I can understand but, that. Yeah, but I mean, there are some people that say, no, the system hasn't changed, and others that will say, yes, the system has changed. And then there are other ones that will say, yeah, the system's changed, just not enough. I, w- I would almost agree with the last quote, because yeah. there's always more that we can do. Exactly. Always. So my next question to you is you just went ahead, forged ahead with the idea of a book and the idea of writing down your story because it had to be told through you and in your own words. But you co-authored this book. Tell me a little bit about Carolyn Gussoff, who is, by the way, here, it says a winning broadcast journalist, and she followed you from day one when your story broke, correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, she did. Um, Carolyn is phenomenal. I couldn't have asked for a better co-author. Um, it was nice to be able to write the book with somebody who knew uh, knew the story. I mean, mm-hmm. that just gave, it put a lot less stress on me than having to tell somebody absolutely everything. Um, she knew a lot, and... Um, in 2008, she had contacted my dad and asked my dad if I would be interested in doing a like documentary or an exclusive interview with her. And my dad told her, absolutely not. She wants to write a book, though, so if you can help her in that way, let us know. And um, Carolyn had, at that point, never authored a book before, but she wanted to be able to help me tell my story. Um, so my dad and her met. My dad is very protective over me and my story since it's never been told before. Um, he met with Carolyn, and he determined that she would be a good person for me to talk to and meet with. And that's how the ball got rolling. Um, Carolyn and I emailed a couple times and decided to meet. And... When I first heard her name, I didn't really recognize it other than when I Googled her, when I Googled her name, I saw that she was a reporter on Long Island, so that was neat. And then when I met her, 
I just have this instant, I've known you forever, because I remember seeing her on the news report. Mm-hmm. So it was nice to have that connection with her, too. Absolutely. But for her, too, because as a reporter, I can imagine that you're, you almost get involved in a case like this because she, she is a woman and everyone wants to see this child uh, survive it all. And then there is a 20-year silence, which I'm certain all the media can understand because you need this recuperation time. But there's exactly. in the back of her mind, there must have always been, I really want to know if this child is doing good today. If you are what, what everyone is saying, because you are not just a success story for the press, you're a success story for yourself because you've survived it. Exactly. I think that um, especially the nation has such a... Um I, w- I almost want to say, and this might not be the appropriate terminology, but a voyeurism. You, when you see something in the media, you want to know how they turned out um, and everything else. You want to know more. And so that's why um, Carolyn had contacted me, because she thought that people would want to know how I turned out, that I was married, that I have to, um, at that point I was just married, I didn't have any kids, um, but you have the success story, and how did that happen? With as messed up as my childhood was, how did I come out of the first 10 years of my life and be somewhat normal? Absolutely. Also, because you see both the husband of your godmother go to jail, right? Mm-hmm. And I presume the kidnapper went to jail. We'll talk about that in a second. So even though you're trying desperately to have a normal life, not many children at your age are going into therapy and, no. you know, live with all this baggage, if I may say so, still behind them, even though you try to move on. It's still there in the back of your mind. And that's my question to you. I I seem to understand, and I think every listener does, is that you want to bury these memories What is it for you that makes you say, I have to make them come out? I'm not even talking about the press or the book, but for yourself, what is the healing part of going through these memories for you? The the healing part for me, um, in therapy, I talked about what happened to me, of course. So I had to come to terms with what had happened to me. Then I had to come to terms with how I was feeling about everything. And growing up, nobody cared about my feelings. Nobody cared if I was hurt. Nobody cared if I was too warm, too cold, things like that. Um, So then I had to talk about my feelings and emotions and learn to talk about that and learn that people actually care about me as a person and not just caring about me, making sure that their laundry is done or that I'm getting them food. Um, it, I mean, working up the courage to then remember everything after I've talked about it for so long, I then was able to almost forget about it through my teenage years. I did not let the abuse or the abduction define me. Um, I became a so-called normal teenager, normal friends, normal relationships, normal teenage life. And then the same as an adult, I... I had as much of an adult, um, uh, as much of a normal adult life as I could possibly have. And then when I started writing the book, 
it was I had to basically remember all of these things about my childhood, the abuse, both physical, emotional, sexual, everything. I had to bring that back to the surface mm-hmm. and remember it so that I could tell my story and to show people. Now, my, my story, I don't want people to um, think that it's a woe-is-me story because I've accepted everything that has happened to me. It's what happened to me. I've come to terms with it. I'm okay with it. It's over. It's in the past. It's done. But I've recovered from that. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is like the most important part of the book and reading the book and understanding what's going on in there is that I've recovered. I'm a so-called normal adult. I have a normal family life. I have normal children, everything. I, I think that's fantastic. Would you say that when you were younger, though, that you said, I'll never be married and be normal, and then suddenly here uh, I talk to you privately and you said you love your husband, you're incredibly happy to be a mom of a three-and-a-half-year-old and 18 months, so you have your hands full? Oh, yeah. Is that something um, that you couldn't even imagine when you were 15, 16? That this- it actually, it isn't. Um And I think I have to credit a lot of that to the fact that my biological brother, John, he was usually always a prominent figure in my life. Um, So because of him, I knew that not all men were going to hurt me or were trying to hurt me. So I think that having him in my life definitely helped out. And then when I went to live with my foster parents, um, that was a typical home. There was a mother and a father, and then I had um, two older sisters and two older brothers. So okay. from all of these positive male figures in my life, I, don't, I wasn't ever scared. I just It was apparent to me that I got dealt a bad hand with two bad cards in it, but the rest of them were fine. Yeah. Well, that that in itself, what you just said, takes a lot of courage. People that are raped, even that do not have a background like you, sometimes are so petrified and paralyzed that they can't move on beyond this. So I have a really difficult question for you. Sure. How, for anyone that listens out there that goes through something similar or just extreme pain, what would you tell them? What is needed to move beyond that, to not be a victim and to say, this is my life, I take it in my hands and I move on? I think that you need to have the will to say that. Um, If you're not ready to admit to yourself what happened and that you're ready to move on from it, I think that the recovery process will be difficult because you have to be ready, willing, and able to do that. I also think that you need to find yourself a good support system, whether it be a counselor or a friend or a parent. Um, I'm all about therapy. I love therapy. My therapist is phenomenal. Um, but you you need somebody to talk to about what, not necessarily about the physical act of what happened, um, whatever that might be but how you are feeling in at that moment and how it's making you feel now. Um, mm. But definitely when, you're, when you are ready and willing, you can 
get up, find a counselor, and talk about it. And that's the biggest thing that aided in my recovery is I wanted to get past it. I wanted a so-called normal childhood. Now, being in the foster home, my parents were offering me a quote-unquote normal life, but if I wasn't willing to accept that and move on from what had happened, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have been able to embrace it. Okay. That's good advice for anyone who's listening. Tell me a little bit, where can we find your book? You can find the book right now. It is on Amazon.com, Buried Memories, Katie Beers' Story. Mm-hmm. It is also on uh, BarnesandNoble.com. It is making its way into Barnes & Noble stores here soon and the other brick-and-mortar stores. Um, mm-hmm. If that's too much for you to remember... You can Google me, Katie Beers. Um, my husband made a website for me, which is still under construction, but it's looking good. Um, that's katiebeers.com. And Facebook is Katie Beers Talks. And any one of those places will get you the information about my book, about ways to contact me if you want me to come speak, things like that. Would you, for example, I, I'm just thinking of that because you mentioned them, CPS, Child Protection Services, is that a place where you would want to talk to to help them educate other children and to be able to give a service that's even more complete? I would be willing to talk to anybody that wants okay. to listen to me. Um, <laughs> I, I really, I just want to get everything out in the open and um, just go from there. I mean, as Children Protective Services or any other youth organization wanted me to come speak with them, I would be willing to do that. I would be willing to speak with schools, with counselors, nonprofits, anybody. Okay. One of the things I asked you, remember when, when we were together, that I told you that when I speak in schools and I hear of sexual abuse from young children, Mm-hmm. What is your advice when a child, in my case, comes up to me and says, my mother says it's okay to be sexually abused, where would we send these children? Because they're so awfully young, just like you were. It is and- absolutely, first off, it is not okay. Anybody that says that it's okay, I have a strong feeling that they endured something going on in their lives as a child, so they're thinking that it's okay. Um, I mean, I would first start off with telling, um, if there's a counselor in the school, telling the counselor what's going on and putting it in their hands so they could further watch for warning signs and things like that and so that they can call the authorities. If that move isn't being made, if the school's not making a move after being alerted, then you calling the authorities yourself right away and saying, this is what the child told me, I think it needs to be checked out. Um, I definitely don't think that anybody that knows of abuse occurring or suspected abuse occurring, they cannot be silent. That is hurting our children. It's hurting future generations. And they're going to, as this little girl's mother stated, they're going to think that it's okay. They're going to think that it's normal, and it's not. Yeah, and the cycle will keep going in that case. Exactly. But it's hard to explain to this child or any child, for that matter, that they had nothing to do with it, that there's nothing wrong with them. What would you say to a child that thinks that? um, That is hard because that was one of the feelings that I had. Um, It was hard for me 
to learn and accept the fact that I did not do anything to um, create the abuse. It was not something that I had done myself. Um, it You just keep reiterating it to the child that it's not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong, even though they're going to think that maybe they're being punished, and that's their punishment is the abuse. They're being punished for something that they did wrong. Um, it's just so important to, for these kids to know that abuse is not okay. Mm -hmm. um, and if somebody says that it is okay, you need to go and talk to somebody else. You need to tell a teacher, like the little girl in the school, she told you, and that was perfect. You need to basically tell somebody until they listen. And it's a shame that the first person that you tell, especially in my, in my case, too, the first person that I told didn't listen. So then mm -hmm. I was like, oh, okay, well, why tell anybody else? Because you didn't believe me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I'm thinking that you have the perfect answer, because I think a lot of children do tell one human being. But if that one human being doesn't listen or doesn't give them the help that they need, why would they ever think that someone else is going to help them, especially a stranger, when your exactly. own parents can't? Exactly. I mean, so. tell a counselor, tell the school nurse, tell your best friend's parents, anybody, um, okay. until something gets done. Okay. Is there anything you want to leave the listeners with about anything, whether it's motherhood today, whether it's moving forward, letting go, police, social workers, anything? Um, I, I think it's a good point to end with um, that the abuse, first off, is not okay, and that if you are being abused to get help and that when you are ready to tell somebody and seek a counselor that you can move on, that the abuse does not have to define you when you're ready to move on from it and get the appropriate counseling, that you can move on and it won't have to remain with you all of the time and engulf your life. I think it's fantastic, Katie. I told you that over the phone previous uh, in our pre-interview. I think it's fantastic that you're doing this because I think there are, unfortunately, a lot of sexual abuse and a lot of children's neglect out there, not just in North America, everywhere in the world. Uh -huh. And so to have your story out there and for you to have the courage to do this um, is uh, inspirational and good for all the children out there. Do you think that they could read your book from a certain age? Or would you say children under a certain age should not read my book? Um, I don't know what age that would be um, because the book does go into some graphic... Um, it does go into some graphic detail about the abuse. Um, I mean, not graphic, but I definitely think that a grade schooler should not read it. Um, or it should be uh, monitored, them reading it, so they're not reading the more graphic details of it. I definitely I, think, like, high school would be an okay age. Okay. High school sounds really good because I think that's where you're so confused and it's the time to maybe really let go 
And mm -hmm. by reading your book, I can almost imagine that the child says to herself, it happened to her, she did it, I can do it too. Yeah, exactly. It, on that note, we're going to end the show. Katie, again, thank you so much for being uh, on Voice America and for giving us the chance to talk to you and for all the listeners out there. I have put it on Facebook and on LinkedIn, and I linked back to your Facebook page called Katie Beers Talks. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Thank you so much, Gabriella. Okay, so anyone who has a question out there for her, she's more than willing and able to answer you and to give you any uh, of her own might to you and advice. Thank you so much for being with us, Katie. Thank you. And good luck in all your endeavors and helping the children out there. You're thank doing you great so much. Work. Thank Bye you. Bye for now. And everyone, Bye. thank you for listening to the Might Radio Show, and we'll tune in next Friday again. Thank you again for joining us this week. Might Radio with Gabriella Von Ray can be heard every Friday at noon Eastern Time, 9 Pacific Time, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a great week, and until our next show, think of a random act of kindness that you can perform. Music.